Well, good morning, and I uh, hope you had a fantastic Christmas connecting with family and friends. Um, and and we're, we can, we're almost to the end of the year. We can see 2019 from where we sit today. Just a few hours away, the year will be turning, the calendar will be turning, and a new year will start. And as we often do at the end of a year, we look forward to the year. We make resolutions. We make predictions. You'll see them in the news about trends and fads and sports predictions, all sorts of things. Uh, who's going to win an election, what's going to happen in the country, things like that. But we also, it's also kind of a tradition that we look back at the past year, right? What are the events that have shaped our world? What are the things that have changed our own personal lives? Uh, are, are, are the predictions that were made, how many of them came true? Well, I thought we'd start with uh, listening to a few predictions from the past that I'm sure their writers or speakers wish they could retract. This is from Business Week, August 2nd, 1968. With over 15 types of foreign cars already on sale here, the Japanese auto industry isn't likely to carve out a big share of the market for itself. Okay, that was obviously wrong. Thomas Watson, chairman of IBM in 1943. I think there's a world market for maybe five computers. Uh, This is from DECA Recording Company regarding the Beatles. We don't like their sound, and guitar music is on the way out. And, and, and this one, this one, uh, there, it kind of hits close to home. The problem with television is that the people must sit and keep their eyes glued on a screen. The average American family does not have time for that in 1939. Predicting the future is hard, isn't it? Uh, sometimes it can be humiliating when we're so far off the mark. Every year there are predictions made in January. Every, at the end of the next year, everybody looks back and discovers that most of them probably weren't true or off the mark. I mean, how easy is it to predict who is going to win championships in sports? Well, except for college football, Alabama, Alabama, Clemson, Alabama, Alabama, over and over. How easy is it to predict the stock market? One day it's up, one day it's down. One day it's up, one day it's down. How easy is it to predict the weather? As human beings, we have certain limits, and and one of those limits is that we cannot accurately and precisely predict future events. None of us have a crystal ball, in other words. So what do we make, then, of all the Old Testament prophecies concerning the birth and the life and the death and, yes, even the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How do we make sense of them? How can they grow and deepen and, and strengthen our faith? Well, this morning you just heard, read um, from, by Stephanie, an Old Testament prophecy by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53. It's packed full of, of prophecies about Christ's life and death and, and suffering. But that's just the tip, tip of the iceberg. But before we look at some of these Old Testament prophecies, we don't have time to cover them all, certainly. But before we look at them and, and, and the prophets and their role in all this... I think we're going to look first briefly at a uh, New Testament passage written by the Apostle Peter uh, concerning the prophecies about Christ. It's found in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you. So he's saying the prophets spoke and predicted salvation that would come to the world, this grace, this gift of God. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke with the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care 
trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he, the, the Spirit of Christ, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. So the prophecies were primarily for those who would come. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And there's this interesting line, even angels long to look into these things. So let me, let me share a bit of Bible trivia. This is the only place in all the Bible where angels and prophets are connected in the same text. Which is fascinating because if you read the Bible, you know there's a lot of prophets, a lot of mention of prophets. There's a lot of mention of angels. But this is the only place that they're together connected in the same text. Now, now if you study what Peter wrote, you realize that he has a lot to say about prophets, just a little bit about angels. So we're going to focus on the prophets part. So who were prophets? Well, prophets were the people that were chosen by God to be his spokespeople on earth. Sort of like a reminder from heaven. And now a message from your creator. The prophets had two primary jobs. One, of course, was to proclaim God's word. And the second was to predict future events connected with the Lord and God's people. And Peter's concern in this passage I just read is with number two, the prophets as predictors of the future and specifically the future regarding God's plan of salvation. And Peter wants us to know that though they predicted the coming of Christ, they did not all understand everything that they predicted. And I like to think of the prophets as, as archers. You know, you see those movies like Braveheart or, or Camelot or the King Arthur movies where they have those long wooden bows with the strings and they pull them back and they don't shoot them like this. They shoot them, they shoot them high in the air. They arc high into the air and then they begin their descent toward earth far off in the distance. Well, I like to think of the prophets as, as like that. They're archers and they, they shoot these arrows of truth, these, these predictions, these prophecies about Christ. And so Isaiah pulls back the bow and string and he, he lets it fly. And then Daniel and Moses and Ezekiel and Haggai and Micah, all of these, all these prophets, they, they shoot these arrows of truth. And, and you see them arcing high into the sky. And they're so high and so far that they disappear over the horizon. And the prophets themselves have no idea specifically when those arrows of truth are going to hit their mark, hit the ground. And these arrows of truth, they predict the coming of Christ. Did you know that there are over 300, over 300 prophecies, specific prophecies, separate prophecies in the Old Testament related to the coming of Christ, his, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection? That's 300 plus arrows shot up in the air by many different men in many different places over a 1500 year period. And all those arrows, as we study them and the life of Christ, they fall on Christ. They hit their mark. They hit the target in the person of Jesus Christ. More than 300 prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, the chances of, of, of one person fulfilling just, let's say, mere eight, just eight, eight of those prophecies are one in one followed by 17 zeros. I don't know what that number is. We'll just say gazillion, Okay. For one person to fulfill 48 of these prophecies, 
the number becomes staggering. One chance in 10 to the 157th power. Add to that the other 250 plus prophecies, and it becomes impossible for any other person except for Jesus Christ to ever fit that particular sequence of time and events. These 300 plus arrows of truth prove that he was indeed the promised Messiah, the the coming one, the chosen one. Here are just a few of those predictions about Jesus Christ, the prophets made, the arrows of truth that they launched. That he would be born of a virgin. That he would be born in, in Bethlehem. That he would be born into the tribe of Judah in the line of David. That his ministry would start in the province of Galilee. That he would work miracles. That he would speak in parables. That he would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. That he would be betrayed by a friend. That he'd be sold for, for 30 pieces of silver. That he would be accused by false witnesses. That he would be wounded and bruised. That his hands and feet would be pierced. That he would be crucified with thieves. That his garments would be torn and lots would be cast for them. That his bones would not be broken. That his side would be pierced. That he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. And then, yes, that he would rise from the dead. This is just 12 or 18 of, of the 300 plus prophecies about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Now, these Old Testament prophets did not understand much of what they predicted. Can you imagine, for instance, Isaiah sitting there? He's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and he's writing these words. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. He must have wrestled with this in in prayer and asked God, "What what does this mean? The same would be true for Ezekiel and Daniel and Micah and Haggai and so on and so forth. Uh, Imagine that there's a thousand word a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle and you take the pieces and you divide them among 25 different people and you place them in, in, in different times, different centuries, in different locations with different personalities, uh, with different circumstances of their lives and their birth and their upbringing and their history. And none of them has all the pieces and none of them has the picture that's on the front that you always need. That's what it was like being an Old Testament prophet. David had a few pieces. Ezekiel had a few. Isaiah had a few. Zechariah had a few. But none of them had all of them. And so these prophets shoot their arrows of truth into the air, knowing only that they're going to land somewhere, somewhere out of sight in the distant future. The common theme through a lot of these prophets is the suffering and the glory of Christ. They predicted the coming suffering of the Messiah, like in Isaiah 53 that was just read. Or of his coming glory, like in Isaiah 9. The order is crucial. The Messiah, the Christ, must suffer first and then enter into his glory. This caused all sorts of problems for the early disciples. Uh, remember when Jesus would say, I'm going to be, I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to be hung on a cross. All these different things like, no, no, Lord, it can't be that way. It it can't be that way. We need to come right into your glory. Let's establish your kingdom. This can, no, not, this can't happen. But the prophets all spoke that Jesus must suffer first and then enter into his glory. 
Remember the events of the first Easter Sunday? Jesus rises from the dead. He appears to some women at the tomb and then some men later and then some people, some disciples in a, in a room. And then later that day, there was two disciples who are walking to Emmaus, a small town not too far from Jerusalem. And they're walking along and they've heard these rumors, but they're not sure what to believe. They're disappointed. They're, they're frustrated. They're sad. And they're walking along and Jesus comes alongside them. And they don't recognize him at first. And they share what's been going on. And, and he says this, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. In other words, you haven't connected the dots yet. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And it says that Jesus then went through the Old Testament. He began to teach them that this was what was supposed to happen. And no doubt he looked at all these different prophecies with them. And then it says their eyes were opened and they realized who he was. Though none of the prophets had all of the details, they testified that Christ would suffer and then enter into his glory. I mean, all of the prophets, Jesus said, all of them testify to who he is, to what he came to do. The Bible is one book with 66 parts, and all of them point to Jesus Christ in one way or another. So Jesus is the prophet that's greater than Moses. He is the priest that's greater than Aaron. He is the king that is greater than David. He is the theme of the Bible. The prophets knew he was coming hundreds of years in advance, and they wrote it all down for our benefit and for our salvation, that we might know God's grace. It was all written down so we would know and, and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that he is the Savior, the Redeemer, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. I find enormous comfort and encouragement in this fact. You know, sometimes we doubt our faith. Let's be honest. Sometimes we look around the world and we wonder what God is doing. Why does he intervene here? Why doesn't he do this? Why does he allow this? Or we look at our own lives or the lives of friends or loved ones and we begin to ask those same questions and we begin to wonder, am I, am I just wanting this to be true? And our emotions can be like a roller coaster up and down, like the stock market, up, down, up, down, depending on the circumstances and the rumors of the day. But Christianity is not about our emotions. It's about written facts of history. It's about the predictions of the prophets that have all come true in the person of Jesus Christ. Following Christ is about the person of Christ. Doubts come and go, but doubts do not determine the truth. The truth about Christ stands forever. And we have good and solid reasons, including the prophecies, to believe. And the truth about Christ that we celebrate this Christmas and the gift that we receive in faith is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, born of a virgin, who came to live and die for our sins on a cross. And the truth we celebrate and the gift we receive is, is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, who took upon himself the sins of the world, and died that we can live. Author uh, Henri Nouwen tells the story of a family he knew in Paraguay. Uh, the, the person, the family he knew was led by a, 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 the father, a doctor, who spoke out against, against the military regime and their abuses, the human rights abuses. 
And local police uh, took revenge when they couldn't get him to shut up. They took revenge upon him and they arrested his teenage son and they threw him in jail and they tortured him. And eventually they beat him to death. And the townsfolk were enraged and they wanted to turn the boy's funeral into a huge protest march. But the doctor shows another means of protest. At the funeral, the father displayed his son's body as he had found it in the jail, naked, scarred from electric shocks and cigarette burns and bruises from the beatings. And all the villagers filed past the corpse, which lay not on a coffin, but on the blood-soaked mattress that he had been killed on from the cell, the prison cell. It was the strongest protest imaginable because it put the evil and atrocity and the injustice on grotesque display for all to see. What was done in the darkness was brought into the light. Isn't that what God did and does for us at Calvary? The cross that held Jesus' body, naked and and marked from scars, pierced, exposed all the violence, all the injustice, all the evil of the world. The cross revealed what kind of world we have. A world of gross unfairness and sin and wickedness. But the cross also revealed what kind of God we have. A redeeming God, a loving God, a gracious God. A God who is willing to suffer and to sacrifice so that we can share in the glory of the Son. Reflect upon God's gift to you this Christmas. As I close again by reading the prophecy again, beginning a few verses earlier from Isaiah chapter 53. See, my servant will act wisely and he'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. And who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. And surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, and yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. And each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, and for the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had no, done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord made his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring 
and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. And therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made transgression and made intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which was recorded hundreds of years before Jesus was born, that point to the person of Jesus Christ, to his life and his mission, his calling, his victory on our behalf. He became sin so that we could be forgiven of our sin. He was killed and dead so that we could be raised again into new life, just as he was. Lord, we thank you for the gifts of your son, Jesus. We pray that you would strengthen our faith for this coming year. That we would be people who live out our faith daily in all areas of our lives. Our relationships, our business, our work, our leisure, our relationships with family and friends, our values, our thoughts, and even including how we use our time and our resources, Lord. May we honor you. For you are truly worthy. You are our Messiah, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer, our friend. We offer ourselves to you now, Jesus, in your name. Amen.